New York City police fire and correction budget is seven point six billion. The entire peacekeeping budget in all the places it covers it, all the millions of people it helps is about six point six. So that while there may be detractors or so, I don't mind saying it. I think we do a hell of a job. That is my new hero and Sindhuja's as well, Chief of Peacekeeping Operations Support Section, Ken Payumo. It's incredible. He's going to tell us all about what it's like to be on the ground as a peacekeeper, um, what it means when you have to make sudden decisions. It's a daunting task. He's a former New York City uh, policeman. Yep who was actually injured in the line of duty and then uh, had a colleague who suggested he go to the U.N., and he took a six-month job that became his career. For 20 years. Yep. He's a fascinating man with a fascinating story. And we also were lucky enough to talk to Nick Burnback, who's the chief of strategic communications at the Department of Peace Operations here at the United Nations. And he gave us a really wonderful policy perspective, you know, what it, what it means to kind of get a peacekeeping mission off the ground what the from the really, mandate side, exactly. how that develop, how that's developed, um, the coordination with the folks on the ground, exactly. And it was nice to see that they're very much in lockstep. Yep, they're completely complementary, which is um, which is exactly what you'd want. And we're we're going to be able to hear from both of these um, really unique perspectives throughout the episode today, right, Dewall? You know it. Let's do it. And here's Nick Burnback to start us off. Matters are brought to the attention of the Security Council, which is the body that's chartered uh, to deal with breaches of uh, international peace. Mm -hmm. Um, And after a report from the Secretary General, the Security Council makes a decision uh, to pass a mandate that allows us to deploy or, if you like, to cross a sovereign border with armed force um, so that it's not an act of war. Mm -hmm. Um, We then go and find troops, police and military, whatever we think is necessary and whatever the, the member states have voted for in order to execute that mandate. Mandate. We have no standing forces. Mm. There's no filing cabinet somewhere where we can open up and pull out police and military and stuff. Um, and so sometimes it can be quite hard to get what we need to do the job, particularly certain assets are, that are very hard to find, like attack aviation or special mm. forces or combat engineers or signalers or things like that. Um, but also on the policing side, forensics units and and things because there aren't there aren't that many of them. But right. we, we pull this together, we cobble it together, each each mission specifically. Um, and we do what we can to try to um, fulfill those specific elements of the mandate on the ground. There's some small number of staff officers here, um, police and military, and um, small capacities that we can call on to for for emergencies to try to help out and to stand up deployments. But the truth is, is that each each mandate will have uh, requirements. Each mandate is designed to fulfill the specific requirements that each situation calls for, right? And so we yeah. then go to the member states and we ask them for for whatever it is we need. And in certain cases, we might need things like uh, close air support. Support or, or strategic airlift or, um, or or formed police units that could help fill a, fill a gap in, in riot control or things like that. And so we ask the member states to provide those capacities that we need to do the jobs that they've assigned us. So Nick gave us a really interesting perspective on, you know, what it means to go to the Security Council, get this mandate in order to, for a peacekeeping operation to even to even get off the ground. What's really fascinating is that because each peacekeeping operation is unique, you need unique resources, which means you're really you're going to member states and saying, hey, do you have this person who can support us with uh, a water engineer? Do you have this person who can do this? And it's it's a little more than buying a plane ticket. Right. Exactly. It's putting together an operation. 
Then we spoke to Ken Payuma about what it's like actually on the ground when you receive these resources. Everything can be planned perfectly, but things will come up and you will have to work with exactly what you have to do the most that you can. Exactly. And here's Ken Payuma. Fitzgerald, I'll just start off with a story when we were starting the mission in 2004 in, in Haiti. So we arrived on the ground. The uh, um, security situation was, was fragile. Went to this restaurant that was close by to our base, and uh, the uh, waiter gave me a menu. I ordered uh, something, was, I think it was a baked chicken and, and, and rice, something like that. Uh, waited for a while, and he came out with a ham sandwich. And I said, I didn't order this. And he said, but that's all we have. So, so really, that to me kind of rings in that you work with what you have. Yeah. You know, yeah. you, you're given a specific mandate, but you have specific tools. You may not get more than that. And then and how do you adjust those, those uh, not only, say, assets and, and, and skills and persons to, to the mandate and the security situation, right? Because in, inherently, where peacekeeping missions are, there is some type of security profile that, that, that many have to, have to deal with, I mean, particularly the UN staff members. I mean, the, the mandates are so uh, not only complicated, I mean, they've, they've evolved from, from basically standing between two parties that didn't uh, get along to, to now getting involved with, with the communities. The more visual part of, uh, or visible part of peacekeeping are the blue helmets, yeah. right? But, but, but essentially, with, with today's mandates, we have a minimum of 14,000 civilian staff that are wow. out there that aren't blue helmets, right. right? But are exposed to the same security situation, the, the same threats, the same threats and risks. And uh, like I said, you know, how do you pick a team? Well, you have to pick one that adapts because you, you need somebody who who has to be able to uh, to live in, in environments that are aren't necessarily comfortable, right? And um, and uh, I mean, just through what I've uh, been through personally in uh, different kinds of uh, things that have happened to me in, in the environment, and much less security-wise, you, know, you need people that are a bit more resilient. Right? Mm. And when you, it, it, so it's a, it's a difficult recipe of, of, of somebody, you know, to uh, or a difficult recipe in, in somebody to have. You have a mandate, and you're going to do the best you can, and everybody has their part in implementing that. And like I said, uh, no matter what, it will be a good team. Mm. Yeah, the, the level of, of what you do again, may, may vary, but, but the team itself has to, has to work well. I mean, there is no choice. Diwa, what's so fascinating, really, about what Ken tells us is how much adaptation needs to happen on all sides of the story, right? It's not just the peacekeepers coming in and definitely needing to adapt um, to the ground conditions, being able to utilize resources in the best way possible. But what we're also going to hear is the communities are also adapting to this new context. And every individual within that community, right? The institutionality as an idea may be... Completely foreign. Completely foreign to them. That's correct. And in, in a lot of these areas, if you need peacekeeping in an area, there is most likely often some distrust mm. of, of organized institutions. So the idea of rebuilding a faith in institutionality is is also part of what peacekeepers are do, peacekeeping and peacekeepers are doing. And I like in this in this next answer what we heard. There are it, it might be a small gesture. Maybe you might be working on a, a large plan with the groundwater and everything. But sometimes someone may just want to open up to you as a human being, which helps build that trust. Absolutely. How do we put the rule of law you know, in, into the forefront you know, of, of people's lives? People had been through a bit of trauma, not only from, say, day-to-day living, but, but um, through a conflict that had been going on prior to the peacekeeping mission actually um, getting started. So when, when people are living their daily lives and you want to say, institutionalize things, it, it becomes very different. And, and the people that you bring on really have to, have to understand it. So it's not, it's not really 
um, knowledge uh, transfer. It's, it really is and, and not in one single lesson, but it's through adaptation. It's, it's through good practices, best practices. Mm-hmm. How is what we're exhibiting I mean, going to, going to help you and going to help your family and going to help the society in general? So you really do need people that can do that. And, um, and I really think the, the example or the word you use about adaptation, really, it's, 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 it's required. It's not required, I mean, in the environments, but particularly in peacekeeping. If you do what you can, I mean, with, with the resources you have, sometimes it's just, just trying to, to say that you understand because there's not much you can sometimes give. There's not much. Um, th- these are extremely remote locations where aid is difficult to not only give, but to how do you, how, how do you maintain, maintain it there? And No, but uh, I, th- I think it's really understanding and compassion, you know, how, how, where that, how where that comes out. Sometimes it's uh, um, through something that's uh, rice or water, or sometimes it's just, again, being able to sit down with them and talk and, 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 and let some feelings out. I love that response by Ken because it's very human. It's in the moment, the part where he says sometimes, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but sometimes someone just wants to talk to you Mm. about their feelings, right? You have to react in that moment. And these next responses are about a pivot or a reaction to circumstances changing on the ground, right? Absolutely. The fluidity, the flexibility that UN peacekeepers have to have because, you know, while the mandate says X, Y, Z, for example, we're going to hear about a very specific context in South Sudan where the idea was to build a new nation and, and bring it up from ground zero. But what happens when circumstances on the ground really, you know, take a, a complete 90 degree turn and all of a sudden you're going from building this nation state to we have to engage in civilian protection mode now? Yeah. And I, I also just to add, I love this because... I think sometimes the detractors of the UN will say it's a large bureaucratic organization that doesn't react well. You're hearing responses and stories from people on the ground reacting in the moment. In the moment, in real time, protecting people's lives. I can guarantee you Ken Payuma wasn't sitting around waiting for an email when he made his decision to help these people in this story. So in this context, we're first going to hear from Nick Birnbeck, who tells us about the structural procedural side of what happens when a mandate needs to change. And then we're going to hear from Ken Payuma, who's talking about what it's like to react in real time on the ground. In South Sudan, that's kind of an interesting case. So in South Sudan, um, one of the great... uh, one of the great positives, I think, of UN peacekeeping was on full display, Mm. which is our ability to be flexible and to pivot. Um, That that mission started out with a very particular set of tasks, which was essentially to stand up a a state. Um, And that as the situation on the ground got worse and degenerated into what is called by many a a civil war, um, what we were there to do suddenly changed. So the envisioned tasks of that that mission, which was to basically build sustainable institutions, stand up sustainable institutions of governance and do what we could to make this help make the state viable, changed very quickly to a protection of civilians task. Mm-hmm. And to this day, there are, are any number of civilians that are within our camps being protected by United Nations peacekeepers. And now we're going to hear from Ken, who shows us exactly what it looks like when you are impartial, but certainly not neutral. In South Sudan during the... Um uh, 2013 into 2014 crisis where um, we were prepared to do a specific mandate and things are going f- fairly well in doing independent state and and um, o- just about overnight the uh, situation had changed and um, 
and we had to stop the mandate. You know, it's, it's, you know, I've been lucky enough uh, in, in this, in this, uh, in this uh, organization to be in the, at the birth of the two of the newest uh, nations during their Independence Day. It was there for the birth of East Timor Independence Day. It was the birth in South Sudan for Independence Day. So there, there's excitement, right? There's, you, know, you want to do a lot. You, it's a new country, and, and off we go. It's, it's a rare opportunity, and, and we were up to a certain level, and, um, and uh, we, we, we had to shift focus again, literally overnight, and uh, and it was it was difficult. It's more of a protection capacity. Indeed, yeah, it was it was it was, it was difficult. So so uh, from from trying to find uh, community service efforts and, and again rule of law to all of that to 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 more protection of civilians, even protection of ourselves. It became it became extremely difficult, and um, the, the mandate has has now evolved to to, to take that on. But at, at the time, you know, it did feel. We did feel we did feel let down on on a few levels because of all the excitement mm. we were waiting for this for so long, and uh, and, and we we had to, we had to change. Well, it was a ex- extremely difficult uh, difficult time. Um, in in that uh, which once were uh, was a thriving community right outside right outside the base or right outside the compound, all of a sudden became uh, an unfortunate conflict zone um, and. And trying to support as many people as possible was 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 difficult, and it wasn't uh, all we could do was provide space and 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 protection. Mm. Um, but again, medical was service was wasn't there any any of the um, say basic humanitarian services weren't able to make it at the time just because of the uh, security situation. So that that's where it's difficult. Uh, so uh, it was to, to be able to provide the basics was 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 hard, or not to be able to provide them was 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 hard to live through. Well, it's a, uh, and it's uh, extremely difficult to, to to even even speak about because there were a lot of emotions on, on every side. I mean, it wasn't just me; it was, it was the people uh, that, that were in the compound. But um, the 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 tensions in the in the area that that we were that we were in um, were, were were pretty high. The um, government um, and the and the opposition had traded control of the area several times. It was like volleyball, and uh, we were literally in the middle of it. Um, having mortars come into the compound and, and, and gunfire, and um, so it was only the, the UN personnel, but but of course the, the people that they're trying to protect. One stage um, there there was a, um, a government official that 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 uh, and, and and other supporters that had claimed that within the compound um, that there were, if I, if I can say, um, the enemy. You know, I yeah. don't know how to how else to describe it, but how how, how they would have they um, perceived they perceived that and. They wanted to make the, their way in. Um, at the time, they were because they were what called technicals and trucks, so between sixty, eighty, or, or so um, uh, uh, soldiers. But but uh, the context is in the distance. There were at least five thousand or so, mm. and and so if if a stand wasn't made right there with this small group, mm. what we would have had to face later on would have been a, a, a lot more severe. And uh, and and the only way to to prevent entry and uh, and and bloodshed or, or or just just injury was to not have one person with ill intent go through the the gate. Ken's story is so incredible. You know, Dewalt, we hear everything that a peacekeeper is supposed to be doing, and he does. He's fluid. He's flexible. He's taking decisions in the moment in order to protect civilians, which is the number one job of a peacekeeper. You know, as we know, when we talked to him, he's a very humble, humble guy. This was clearly an intense experience for him. It is. I mean, hearing about it. It's difficult for him to speak about um, because he's humble and it involves life and death. Exactly. It is the most serious type of situation you can be in. 
And uh, what I loved about the next answer or next uh, piece with Nick Burnback, uh, who I should remind you is the chief of strategic communications, is the way that he sums up the role of a UN peacekeeper. If you were forced to put it into one sentence, uh, what Nick says uh, right now is exactly how you would do it. You can't do it better. All uh, all peacekeepers have a, a responsibility to try to protect civilians in the absence of a credible local authority. Um, and that doesn't change. The second I'd point out is that we are absolutely supposed to be impartial, but that does not mean that we are neutral. Mm. So impartiality is that we, we call it as we see it. Um, neutral is you have no view, and that's not what UN peacekeeping is all about. And and this is where the, uh, the, the choice had to be made. I was outside the gate and there were two other civilian staff with me and, and just to make the decision that closing that door, meaning entry for myself or, or colleagues, was not possible anymore. But at that stage, a commitment was made. You know, people inside the compound were, were more important than, than I was and, and now whatever I could do then to prevent uh, people getting hurt, that was going to be done. That was another amazing answer from Ken Payumo. Absolutely. And again, hearing how how he's able to make those decisions on the ground in order constantly keeping the protection of civilians at the forefront and, and what the mission is all about. Certainly impartial, definitely not neutral. You can't say it enough. You have to take a stand. Mm. You are observe if you're observing some uh, something an atrocity. an atrocity, you must try to stop it. Absolutely. Uh, and I have to uh, kind of want to talk a little bit about something Nick Burnback covered here in studio. Yeah. Uh, he, he mentioned, and I'm paraphrasing Nick, but that, you know, in these situations, you're sending someone's uh, son or daughter or husband or f- whatever or family wife, member or, or wife or, or sister exactly. or brother. Exactly. And, you know, peacekeeping at its best is when it's diverse in every way possible to help those who need it, but you can't forget the family aspect, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And exactly like I think Nick, he he is the director of strategic communications for, for peacekeeping, you know, for a reason. He is, and he could have said what I just said in half the time and much more succinctly. But he, he said it beautifully, we're sending our sons and daughters, um, and that has an impact on families. And we're going to hear again from Ken Payumo now about what his mom, you know, an anecdote that that comes from um, how his mom really missed her son and wanted to talk to him. It's difficult. I mean, my um, say say my mom, of course, always you know, always worried. Uh, when I was, it's one of those funny things you, know, you hear about your mom. But I was in this um, joint operations center. Uh, actually, this is in Timor, and it's literally the middle of nowhere. When you put a map, it's in one, and and. Uh, um, I, I get a call from from an operations officer in there. He says, "It's your mom, Ken." <laughs> I, I know, and, and, and I don't know how she got the number, how she there, but but and, and this is this is a uh, two thousand. So it's not yeah. like we had mobile phone. I mean, great mobile phones. Yeah. Um, but it happens. But but I'm just saying because of the worry that they have. And uh, I, I did meet my uh, my wife in uh, in South Sudan. So so there, there is an understanding um, of of, of the pressure, mm-hmm. but it it doesn't it doesn't go away. But for me. I've I've always tried to had what I do, whether career-wise or anything, as as I mean, to help people. I've been uh, been a police officer, fireman, an EMT person, and again a lawyer. And then doing in the UN was 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 perfect place to. to it's to a say, part of where, your, where, where can I help? Where can I help? It's the fabric of who you are. Again, that was Ken Payumo talking about his experience on the ground.
so do you, well, you know, obviously we heard we heard that Mrs. Payumo, um, understandably, is worried about her son. He's in touching story. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's in difficult situations, dangerous situations. We, we just heard that he had been in a standoff with the Sudanese government, um, risking his own life. Um, and while, you know, not to at all undermine the fact that the peacekeeping missions are in are in dire situations, those countries, those people. Um, it, yeah, the the fact that the peacekeepers themselves are also in difficult situations in no way um, undermines the the trauma of the individuals they're helping. Exactly. Um, but it is it is something that has to be addressed. Even when we spoke with Fabrizio Hochschild, he also ex- and his one of his um, main causes is the mental health and safety and security in that sense of of peacekeepers. And we're going to hear a couple of stories from Ken now, which really show that there is this emotional cost to interacting um, with people who are who are in desperate need. Um, and, and that cost is perhaps untold. Um, and so we're going to hear... And something the UN has done a great job of, of trying to address mm. recently and, and focus on to make sure that these individuals can continue... Uh, the work that they're doing. The work that they're doing. That's right. I was a head of office in a, in a place in, in, in South Sudan, and we were having our um, one of our uh, group meetings. And uh, the uh, judicial affairs officer said, uh, "said We have this one person in uh, in, in the prison here who's uh, who's been in prison for something the equivalent to uh, to larceny, and he's been in prison for about eight, eight years now. And uh, we and please, in, in the, the prison in locations like this aren't." Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's something else, right? And when I heard that it was for stealing the equivalent of something like $2 oh and couldn't pay a fine that would be equivalent to about $20, you know, it was it was uh, it, it it's difficult to, to have somebody confined in in, a, in in that type of uh, location for. So the ability to follow up on something like that mm. Um, to, to 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 get to the truth again, whether or not and right an egregious wrong uh, right, a little bit. Please, yeah. it, it, it's really it's really the small things, but really the the greatest, if I, if I can say, uh, achievement is just being part of this United Nations team. Mm. You you can't duplicate it because we are we are an organism, we are an organization. Just being part of the team is is, is really, I, I think, if I can say, the pinnacle. That was Ken Payumo. Again, you can hear the pain in his voice when he's talking about. Um, how people in these peacekeeping missions, how the civilians are affected. Um, and we're going to hear another story from him now about when he was in the Central African Republic. There really is, is, is no substitute for uh, hearing somebody's story, for seeing how, how they live. For instance, I, there's no way I, I could duplicate uh, seeing somebody's uh, fear in their eyes. Remember once in the Central African Republic, there was this village that was, uh, was massacred. The uh, men were left, but the, the women and children were all taken so what we had found was was really uh, maybe 20, 30 men, again, totally shocked in, in, in their eyes, a total shock in their eyes. And, and they looked and said, well, what, what, what can we do? How, how can we help? And, and the only thing somebody asked for is that, do you have extra tea to give us so we can make tea in the morning? But what, what I mean, it's just, just saying that story in the words itself is, you know, I mean, for me, I mean, it, it, it's meaningful, but seeing the person's eyes and in, there was much more in that, and again, even me just saying it here, it, it unless you were there to see it and to, to, to see his his face and, and his eyes, that's uh, again, it's it's powerful. So you know, there is no substitute for being on the ground. As difficult as it was to hear these interactions that Ken had with people on the ground, it's so vitally important. It not only does he give us a real understanding of what it's like to interact with people on the ground, 
how difficult it is for both sides, but it's so it's so important that we that we hear it, and hopefully our audience is is also just as engaged to again get a sense, get this very vivid picture of what a peacekeeping mission is like. The point of the podcast, and to a degree, the point of the UN, is to tell the stories of these people and to be a, a hero in those stories, stories in any moment where you can. Exactly. And Ken Bayumu is a, a hero to me. In every sense of the word. And and it kind of brings us to um, really the natural next question, is, which is what happens when a peacekeeping mission is over? You know, that, What does that, that transition look like? That's right. And who better to summarize that for us than the chief of strategic communications, Nick Burnback. And we would like to dedicate this section to his mother, since we dedicated one to Ken Payumo's mother earlier. Let's hear what Nick has to say. I've always looked at peacekeeping as a a part of a continuum, um, and that the uh, international community's efforts don't stop uh, when the peacekeepers go home. Um, when we're at our best is is we continue to to work particularly on development issues um, and um, and and we work with uh, the local institutions to not just strengthen them but to ensure their inclusivity and their and their resilience and that when countries <clears throat> have institutions that function and that represent their people that there's a, a much smaller Smaller chance of uh, of backsliding into conflict. UN peacekeeping has a pretty good record of that. Of uh, of there being, for example, peace ten years later after we leave. But the point is, is that it has to be looked at as part of a broader set of uh, of efforts um, by the international community. And of course, once once things seem to be reasonably stable with all the crises in the world, it's very easy to shift your attention. But my sense is that it is exactly at that moment where doubling down on your investment um, can matter the most. You've just you've just sort of bought this fragile piece. Um, the international community can't turn away from it. Then it needs to understand that it is a, that exact moment where a country is beginning to stand up by itself. That it it, can, it needs continued engagement by the international community. That's summed up perfectly, and we are in the moment in a lot of areas in the world that. Nick is, has described. He has accurately stated that you don't just turn away from these areas that were once desperate that now you, where you've developed some institutions mm. where people have, who previously had no hope have now been given some. It's a fragile thing, right? right. And, and you, that is the moment where you double down, exactly. as he says. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly what the U.N., is doing now. Um, we went through our own sort of restructure reform to be able to better support in you know in a more cohesive way that once the peacekeeping operation is is has kind of transitioned and is transitioning to the other context, that now that's where the other departments of the UN, the development departments, the humanitarian departments step up so that we're fostering economic institutions, that we're fostering health and education institutions. And so that every single person in a country is assured of their, their human rights being protected. Two pieces. One, those are the areas of the United Nations that we want to have working. Ideally, there is no peacekeeping force. Right. We know that's not a realistic goal, but that is – that's – That's the dream. That's the dream, right? Number two, and most importantly, we started this episode with Kempayumo telling us that the United Nations operates in a peacekeeping capacity – about with about a billion dollars less than what the New York City Police Department, Fire Department, and Corrections Department budget is. I mean, it's incredible. That's not, not only amazing, that's something that actually sh probably shouldn't happen. Right. I will say it. 
There, so when, when you hear people talking about funding for the United Nations, we hope you think of all of the great stories that you hear about these people doing wonderful work where they're actually saving lives. And putting their lives on the line. Exactly. That's right. So and that was our peacekeeping episode, Dewalt. I, I view all of these people as heroes. I feel mm. like I, we've expressed this about Kempayumo, but what Nick Burnback does is equally important. I just want to say that because he succinctly packs things into a couple sentences where it makes sense exactly. and it's digestible. It the story, yeah. And, and that, is, that is also important, and that's why we're here too, because we want to tell the story of all the great things that people are doing on the ground in the United Nations, and we hope you continue to join us. Thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, stay tuned for our next episode. Bye. Ciao.